Snowden claims to have designed the World Wide Web. It began in 1989, and he was on board connecting the whole thing not too long after that. And he also claims to have to be the developer of the cloud, although there were lots of people out there developing the cloud. Uh, he developed a master cloud. I haven't gotten to the part uh, where he takes credit for it, but he does. I have about 30 minutes I can read. Hi, baby man's dad. Sun was shining, so it was a good day. Anyway, um, I'm on chapter 17 in this author's book. So I'm going to go ahead and give 30 minutes of read time. Um, on the Couch is chapter 18. I'm kind of interested by that. On the Couch. What in the world? That sounds like isolation on the couch. Home on the Cloud. Um, again, the more and more I read this stuff, and I don't even listen back to my audio, because when I'm reading, I'm not necessarily comprehending. He uses words, and I'm wondering, how did somebody who never even went to high school um, on a GED and a, and a patched-up college education in many forms? Well, he, he uh, educated himself on the Internet, but his vocabulary, unless somebody else wrote the words, um, his vocabulary sometimes is a tongue twister for me. So Home on the Cloud... We're more than halfway through the book, page about 190 or so. In 2011, I was back in the United States, working for the same nominal employer, Dell, but now attached to my old agency, the CIA. One mild spring day, I came home from my first day at the new job and was amused to notice the house I'd moved into had a mailbox. It was nothing fancy, just one of those subdivided rectangles common to a townhouse community. But still, it made me smile. I hadn't had a mailbox in years. I had never checked this one. I might not even be registered in its existence had it not been overflowing. Stuffed to bursting with heaps of junk mail addressed to Mr. Edward Snowden, or current resident. The envelopes contain coupons, ad circulars for household products, and someone knew that I had just moved in. A memory surfaced from my childhood. A memory of checking the mail and finding a letter to my sister. Although I wanted to open it, my mother wouldn't let me. I remember asking why, and she said, because it's not addressed to you. She explained that opening mail intended for someone else, even if it was just a birthday card or a chain letter, wasn't a very nice thing to do. In fact, it was a crime. Good point from Edward Snowden's mother. I remember when I lived with my son all those years that it was okay to open his mail. And he used to tell me, no, it isn't, Mom. It's against the law. Stop opening my mail. And so, uh, yeah, 
Edward Snowden's mom, I forget her name. She was a pretty smart cookie. And on page 188, I wanted to know that what kind of a crime? A big one? My mother said, a federal crime. I stood in the parking lot, tore the envelopes in half, and carried them to the trash. I had a new iPhone in the pocket of my new Ralph Lauren suit. I had new Burberry glasses, a new haircut, keys to this townhouse in Columbia, Maryland, the largest place I'd ever lived in and the first place that really felt like mine. I was rich, or at least my friends thought so. I barely recognized it myself. I decided it was best to live in denial and just make some money. Make life better for people I loved. After all, wasn't that what everybody else did, was make money? But it was easier said than done. The denial, I mean, the money came so easy, so easy that I felt guilty. Counting Geneva and not counting periodic trips home, I'd been away for nearly four years. The America I returned to felt like a changed country. I won't go so far to say is that I felt like a foreigner, but I did find myself mirrored, M-I-R-E-D, mired in a way, too many conversations I didn't understand. Every other word was the name of a TV show, or a movie I didn't know, or a celebrity scandal I just didn't care about. I couldn't respond. I had nothing to respond to. Very interesting. Here is a guy who has a similar personality to mine. Reason being, he doesn't watch TV. He doesn't follow movie stars. He doesn't know about celebrity scandals. And he just doesn't care. I'm the same way. I quit watching TV. I used to like to sit in the same room with others who watch TV, but I wasn't much about paying attention. I was in deep thought somewhere else. That's the kind of guy this is. Contradictory thoughts rain down like Tetra's blocks. He's citing another game. And all the guys I used to work with at UPS played Tetris. I played Tetris at work. <laughs> I uh, worked with a bunch of gamers. So anyway, you know, his his uh, pseudonyms or things like are examples through games as a gamer. So contradictory thoughts rain down like Tetris blocks, and I struggle to sort them out to make them disappear. I pity those poor, sweet, innocent people. They're all victims watched by the government. Watch by the very screens they worship. Then I thought, shut up. Stop being so dramatic. They're all happy people. They don't care. And you don't have to care either. Grow up. Do your work. Pay your bills. That's life. A normal life was what Lindsay and I were hoping for. We were ready for the next stage and had decided to settle down. We had a nice background with a, a backyard with a cherry tree that reminded me of a sweeter Japan, a spot on the Tama River where Lindsay and I had laughed and rolled around atop the fragrant carpet of Tokyo blossoms as we watched the Sakura Fall. Whatever the Sakura, S-A-K-U-R-A. He made it sound very beautiful in Japan.
He never talked about the beauty of Geneva, but I was there. It's not that pretty of a city. <laughs> it's very industrialized, very dirty, and very ugly, other than that there'd be money there. Um, page 189, Lindsay was getting certified as a yoga instructor. I, meanwhile, was getting used to my new position in sales. One of the external vendors I work for with Epic Shelter ended up working for Dell and convinced me that I was wasting my time getting paid by the hour. I should get into the sales of the Dell, the side sales of Dell's business, where I would earn a fortune for more ideas like Epic Shelter. Epic Shelter is a code name for a project that they put together for the NSA. I'd be making an astronomical leap up the corporate ladder, and he'd be getting a substantial referral bonus. I was ready to be convinced, especially since it meant distance distracting myself from my growing sense of unease, which could only get me into trouble. The official job title was Solutions Consultant. It meant... In essence, that I was to solve the problems created by my new partner, whom, I, whom I'm going to call Cliff, the account manager. Cliff was supposed to be the face and I was to be the brain. We sat down with the CIA's technical royalty and purchasing agents. His job was to sell Dell's equipment and expertise by any means necessary. This meant reaching deep into the seat of his pants for unlimited slick promises as to how we'd throw, we'd do things for the agency. Things that were definitely, definitely not possible from our computers. And in reality, not possible for us either. My job was to lead a team of experts in building something that reduced the degree to which Cliff had lied by just about enough that when a person who signed the check pressed the power button, we wouldn't all be sent to jail. No pressure. Our main project was to help the CIA catch up with the bleeding edge or just with technical standards of the NSA. By building it the busiest of new technologies, a private cloud. The aim was to unite agencies processing and storage while distributing the ways by which data could be accessed. In plain American, we wanted to make it so that someone in a tent in Afghanistan could do exactly the same work in the same way as someone at the CIA headquarters. The agency and indeed the whole ICs, which is the intelligence community, technical leadership was constantly complaining about silos, S-I-L-O-S. The problem of having a billion buckets of data spread all over the world that they couldn't keep track of or access. So I was leading a team of the smartest people at Dell to come up with a way that anyone anywhere could reach anything, the famous cloud. And they can all reach it because I had my Apple cloud hacked about, uh, uh, I don't know, 
between five and ten years ago. Sometimes my recent memories are a bit foggy and cloudy. Yeah, she was a U of University of Madison student with a fake Facebook page who by Verizon had been given my old phone number. I was one, when I got a new phone, I changed the phone number. So back in the day, I used to have a flip phone, and then I got a BlackBerry. Blackberries were all that. And then uh, I found out I needed to get an iPhone, and I got the iPhone 3, and then I got the iPhone 6. And every single time, I was changing my phone number because I thought, okay, new device, new phone number. Well, it was in this hacking that I already told you Verizon said they didn't do it. Apple said they didn't do it. And uh, who's the other party that was involved? Oh, Google. I had some uh, problems. I had all the contacts stolen out of my phone. I woke up one day and my phone was empty. Um, I'm trying to think what phone was that. Yeah, so I was always getting new phones and, uh, you know, trying out all the new technology. So I had kind of like a duo event. One was um, my cloud. Uh, this This girl... She had put herself on my selfies. That's the only pic- a group of pictures she was interested in. And sometimes I like to change pictures. So I had, she's there. And I'm like, who is this bitch? And so I investigated, found her on Facebook. And she had like a fake Facebook page. She, her last uh, info on there was that she was a student at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. I'm like, really? Who is this bitch? And that could have been her fake book, you know. Um, But anyway, so I reported her. I did a report. I copied her Facebook. I, oh, I reported her to Facebook, too. And I blocked her, and I reported her to Verizon, and I reported her to Apple. uh, Because by now, this is my first Apple I believe I'm having trouble with. And so, you know, it was a long, drawn-out investigation. It seemed to go on, but I just kept after him. And they said back then, I'm going to say maybe as much as 10 years ago, I got the 779 number. And and Apple and Verizon, whoever the highest tech person that I talked to concurred and said, don't you ever, ever, ever change your phone number, ever. Because you pick up somebody else's uh, history. And uh, when people get your old phone number, they pick up your history. And by having my phone number, she was able to get into my iPhone cloud. It was just a fluke. And Verizon and Apple both said, you cannot sell your phones. You cannot give your phones away. Take a hammer and smash them, but do not give them away. And I said, I'd never have given my phones away. They are in my possession. And I, through that event, taught my son 
and he has saved all his phones. I think that's the picture I sent you is uh, the mixing up of our phones. I can't find the three. I don't really care because it's worthless about now. And uh, whatever phone number she... So the similarity between the U of M student, whatever her name was, I can't remember, and me was that Verizon gave her my phone number. They recycled it uh, before all the history on that phone number was uh, erased. So the lesson is never trade in your phone number. And uh, that's how she got into my cloud. She had my old phone number. When I set up my new phone, it just transferred my cloud. Uh, and she had access to it because she had my phone number. It was it was the craziest thing. I do believe Apple has corrected that. Like, uh, I don't know, that was probably back on edition, iOS edition, whatever it was back then, 6? <laughs> It's now on iOS uh, update like 14, close to 14 now, or 13.4, I don't know. So, um, yeah, for me, hacking has been real. Uh, I've been like a magnet. And so, you know, they're talking about the cloud. I just don't trust clouds after that. But here in the book... I uh, got and got off, off from the book, but everything that Snowden's doing <laughs> relates to something that I had. I'm a Forrest Gump. Uh, so is Edward Snowden a Forrest Gump, you know? He's been in some pretty interesting places and gotten himself into an interesting pickle. But the difference is uh, Forrest Gump and Snowden seem to have pocketed some money. So going back to the Dell, which I do believe it was his last job before he defected from the uh, United States. Um, if you call it defecting, I don't know. Um, exiling himself. Um, anyway, so in the concept stage on page 190, I was leading a team of the smartest people at Dell to come up with a way that anyone anywhere could reach anything. During the proof of the concept stage, the working name of our cloud became Frankie, Freaky Frankie, as in Frankenstein. We had, back when he went to Geneva, he brought the book Frankenstein. Whether it's actually called Frankie, I don't know. I know that he changed the names in his book in many places. Uh, don't blame me. On the tech side, we just called it the private cloud. It was Cliff who named it. In the middle of the demo with the CIA saying they were going to love our little Frankenstein because it is a real monster. The more promises Cliff made, the busier I became, leaving Lindsay and me. I love how he always says Lindsay and me. Um... That is an indication he wrote the book. It's some of that is uh, improper English. But then again, he only had a couple years of high school education. 
and uh, his college, you know, is questionable. <laughs> so anyway, I have to read this again because he says it a lot in the book. And I even changed it when I've been doing audio. Like whenever he says Lindsay and me, when I'm on audio, I change it. I rewrite the book to say Lindsay and I. You know, I've said that. I look at his mistake and go, okay, it's not Lindsay and me, but that's how he wrote it. That's why I think there's a little piece that tells you there, this is uh, uh, authentic and from his heart and real. Um, so they only had the weekends to catch up with their parents and old friends. We tried to furnish and equip our new home. The three-story place had come empty. So we had to get everything or everything that our parents hadn't generously handed down to us. This felt very mature, but was at the same time very telling about our priorities. We bought dishes, cutlery, desks, chairs, but we still slept on a mattress on the floor. I became allergic to credit cards with all their tracking. So we bet bought everything outright with hard currency. When we needed a car, I bought a 98 Acura and paid 3000 cash for it. Earning money was one thing, but either Lindsay nor I liked to spend it, unless it was for computer equipment or a special occasion for Valentine's Day. I bought Lindsay the revolver she always wanted. Wow. This girl likes to tote a gun. <laughs> Our new condo is 20-minute drive from nearly a dozen malls, including the Columbia Mall, which was nearly 1.5 million square feet of shopping, occupied by 200 stores, 14-screen AMC complex, movie theater, P.F. Chang's, and a cheesecake factory. As we drove the familiar roads in a beat-up Integra, I was impressed but slightly taken aback by all the development that had occurred in my absence. The post-9-11 government spending spree had certainly put a lot of money into local pockets. It was unsettling and even overwhelming to come back to America after having been away for a while and to realize just how wealthy this part of the country was and how many consumer options it offered, how many big box realtors and high-end interior design showrooms, and all of them had sales for President's Day, Memorial Day, Independence, Labor, Columbus, Veterans, Festive Banners announced the latest discount just below all the flags. And here this guy is with his girl, both in common, only spending cash. They stay completely away from credit cards. I have found that it is a mistake being on credit cards. I've gotten rid of all mine. I've gotten rid of my storage. Um, and I don't like it. I'm in this uh, worldwide charity program, and they want the donations by... Square, Venmo, PayPal. I don't like using those. I trust my Apple Pay and I trust U.S. Bank's cash transfer program called Zelle. 
Um, but I haven't used Zelle that much. But now there's all these other new softwares being thrown at me. You know, after reading Snowden's book, I'm not really that interested in putting my financial account information out there. I'm not interested in writing anybody a check. I just want to give people cash. And if I don't have the cash, I'm not interested. I, I totally get this part of Snowden. So on page 199, 191, our mission was pretty much appliance-based on this one afternoon. I'm recalling we're at a Best Buy. We're having settled on a new microwave. We're checking it out. Lindsay's healthful, insistent, a display of blenders. She had her phone out and was in the midst of researching which of the 10 or so devices had the best reviews when I found myself wandering over the computer department at the far end of the store. But along the way, I stopped. There was at the edge of the kitchen, ensconced atop a brightly decorated and lit elevated platform, a shiny new refrigerator. Rather, it was a smart fridge being advertised as internet equipped. This plane simply blew my mind. A person approached interpreting my stupefaction as interest. It's amazing, isn't it? Proceeded to demonstrate the features of the refrigerator. A screen was embedded in the door of the refrigerator. Next to the screen was a holder for a tiny stylus, which would allow you to scribble messages. If you didn't want to scribble, you could record audio and video memos. In your refrigerator? Really? Really, baby man's dad? I've never seen this. <laughs> and this is back a few years ago. Uh, you could use the screen as you would your regular computer because the refrigerator had Wi-Fi. <laughs> you could check your email, check your calendar. You could watch YouTube clips, listen to MP3s. You can even make phone calls from your refrigerator. Uh, I had to restrain myself from keying in Lindsay's number and saying from across the floor, I'm calling from a fridge. <laughs> Beyond that, the salesperson continued. The fridge's computer kept track of internal temperature, scanning barcodes, freshness of your food. And of course, the price was over 9000 delivery included. I remember driving home in a confused silence. This wasn't quite the stunning moonshot tech future we had been promised. I was convinced the only reason that that thing was internet equipped was so that it could report back to the manufacturer about its owner's usage and about any other household data that was obtainable. The manufacturer in turn would monetize the data by selling it. And we were supposed to pay for the fridge. And you know what? Snowden is absolutely right. Anything from a device is used to gather data. On my Apple, I've turned out off the device. I've gone in deep into my phone. And I've turned off the uh, data gathered for advertisers and whatnot. The surveillance, as much as I could. I couldn't turn it all off. I wondered at what point 
was my getting so worked up over our government surveillance. If my friends, neighbors, and fellow citizens were more happy to invite corporate surveillance into their homes, allowing themselves to be tracked while browsing in their pantries as if they were browsing the web, it would be still a half a decade before Dolmotic's revolution or the virtual assistants like Amazon Echo and Google Home were welcomed into your bedroom. Place profoundly and proudly on nightstands to record and transmit all activity within range, to log all habits and preferences, not to mention fetishes and kinks, which would then be developed into advertising algorithms algorithms and converted into cash. The data would generate just by living, and I do live in a Google Home. I do live with uh, as much robotics as possible. Um, the only thing I have is my laptop, which is 10 years old, and this phone, uh, which is quite outdated um, by about mm, three years. It's three years old. It's getting quite old. <laughs> And I bought it as it was coming out of style. You know, they were just getting ready to come out with the next one from the i7. Whatever it was, the i8, 9, 10, 11, X, whatever. <laughs> would enrich, the data would enrich private enterprise and impoverish our private existence in equal measure. If the government surveillance was having the effect of turning the citizen into a subject, as a mercy of state power, then corporate surveillance was turning the consumer into a product, which corporations sold to other corporations, data brokers, and advertisers. Meanwhile, it felt as if every major tech company, including Dell, was rolling out new civilian versions of what I was working on for the CIA, a cloud. In fact, Dell had even tried four years previously to trademark the term cloud computing, but was denied. I was amazed how willingly people were signing up, so excited at the prospect of their photos and videos and music and eBooks being universally backed up and available that they never gave much thought as to why the uber sophisticated convenience storage solution was being offered to them for free and for cheap in the first place. I didn't think I'd ever seen a concept be so uniformly bought into, the cloud. It was an effective sales for Dell to sell to the CIA as it was for Amazon and Apple and Google to sell their users. I can still close my eyes and hear Cliff smoozing some CIA suit about how with the cloud you'll be able to push security updates across agency computers worldwide. When the cloud's up and running, the agency will be able to track who has read what file worldwide. The cloud was white and fluffy and peaceful, floating high above the fray. Though many clouds make stormy sky, a single cloud provided a benevolent bit of shade. It was protective. I think it made everyone think of heaven. Dell, along with the largest cloud-based private companies, Amazon, Apple, and Google, 
regarded the rise of the cloud as a new age of computing. But in that concept, at least, it was something of regression to the old mainframe architecture of computing's earliest history, where many users all depended upon a single powerful central core that could be only maintained by the elite cadre of professionals. More terminology, C-A-D-R-E, elite cadre. The world had abandoned the impersonal mainframe model only a generation before. Once businesses like Dell developed personal computers cheap enough and simple enough to appeal to mortals, the renaissance that followed produced desktops, laptops, tablets, smartphones, all devices that allowed the people of freedom to make an immense amount of creative work. The only issue is how do you store it? This was the genius of cloud computing. Now it didn't really matter what kind of personal computer you had because the real computers that you relied on were warehoused in enormous data centers with that the cloud companies built throughout the world. These were in a sense the new mainframes, row after row of racked identical servers linked together in such a way that each individual machine acted with a collective computer computing system. The loss of a single server or even an entire data center no longer mattered because there were droplets in larger global cloud. From the standpoint of a regular user, a cloud is just an age mechanism that ensures that your data is being processed and stored, but not on your personal device, but on a range of different servers which ultimately be owned and operated by different companies. The result is that your data is no longer yours. It's controlled by companies which can use it virtually for any purpose. Read your terms of service for your cloud storage, which get longer and longer by the year. Current ones are over 6,000 words. 6,000 words, twice the average length of one of these book chapters twice the average length of one of these book chapters. This guy, he knows what he's talking about, and he didn't have anyone make it up. Only Edward Snowden knows what he's writing about. When we choose to store our data online, we're often ceding our claim to it. Companies can decide what type of data they will hold for us, willfully delete any data they object to, unless We've kept a separate copy on our own machines or drives. This data will be lost forever. If any of our data is found to be particularly objectionable or otherwise in violation of terms of service, the company can unilaterally delete our accounts, deny us to use of our own data, and retain a copy of their own records, which they can turn over to authorities without knowledge or consent. Ultimately, the privacy of our data depends on the ownership of our data. There is no property less protected and yet no property more private. The internet I'd grown up with, the internet I'd been raised on was disappearing. And so was my youth. Um, he, he, he kind of separated this part here, kind of like a chapter within a chapter. And it goes on for one, two, three, four, 
five, about six more pages. And I'm going to read it all, but I just want to see what's he trying to get to here. Um, he felt defeated. The great institutions of my life had been betrayed and were betraying me. My country and the Internet, and now my body was following suit. My brain had quite literally short circuit. Um, so, yeah, he's got something going on. Um, and I will certainly read and see what's going on. So he's back in 2011 when all the change is coming about. And I'm going to end there because I've gone on for more than 30 minutes. So, yeah, chapter 17 is about the cloud. That's why he titled it The Cloud. <laughs> okay, that's all for now. I refuse to have fear over what's happening. I know that my bank is taking extra measures. Uh, U.S. Bank is not going to tell you what they're doing, but I've just noticed some things that they're doing. When I was trying to get my apartment, uh, they refused to accept the facts for information from my bank account. She said, well, I've always faxed. Uh, she wanted just a bank account, average balance, and... Uh, she wanted the uh, um, signature from a bank officer. And they didn't even respond. They just ignored it. You call that pinging. So I went in there in person with her uh, form requesting for the government. You see, these government offices don't work together. Talk about connecting. We had Snowden connect the whole World Wide Web and build the cloud. Why doesn't Snowden go to work connecting all these government offices that don't work together? I think it's a shame that uh, the bank won't give out information, but HUD demands it. And they communicate in whatever way they want to. And, and she told me, the apartment manager told me, well, they've always conformed before. Well, these are different times that we're in. And right now, I can't get into a Venmo account. My bank won't allow that. I can't get into, uh, I dumped my phone and tried to reload uh, my wallet with my credit card. My bank won't let me do it. Anything that's a duplicate request or a new request on an already established bank account is just not happening right now. I have a broken down card on some of these old machines. If I go through a drive-thru, uh, it won't work. My card is not working. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that it's been updated to uh, not read on older equipment. Uh, I'm, I'm being more careful about using it. I got some cash today at U.S. Bank in their teller. The machine and the money was cleanly washed. I mean, that just sound like, uh, I looked at that stuff. That was cleanly fresh washed money. I believe they're turning in the money.
and they're replacing it with brand new money or they're putting it in a washing machine. It's perfectly pressed, flat, crispy, and new. Looks untouched to me. Back in the day, oh, around 2011 or 12, I got an Amazon Kindle as uh, being by myself and at home a lot. It really dropped my income after the divorce from my husband. And so I did get the Amazon Kindle. My kids might have even bought it for me as a Christmas present. So, yeah, I, I was very familiar with the Amazon Cloud. Um, let's see, does he give a date? So the next chapter is about the cloud, home on the cloud. And uh, it seems to me that the cloud is really taken off at the time when I got on the Amazon. Yep, even in 2011, it was clear to me that this was where technology was leading us without any substance substantive public debate so um i got the cloud when it first came out on amazon they they're right there <laughs> trying to be the leaders so this cloud is about his part in developing it and I'm quoting from his book, Home in the Cloud. I tried to talk to Lindsay about all this, but though she was generally sympathetic to my concerns, she wasn't so sympathetic that she was ready to go off the grid or even off Facebook or off Instagram. I did that, she said. If I did that, she said, I'd be giving up my art, abandoning my friends. You used to like to be in touch with other people. She was right. And she was right to be worried about me. She thought I was too tense, under too much stress, that I was not because of my work, but because of the desire to tell her the truth that I wasn't allowed to. I couldn't tell her that my for former core works workers at NSA could target her for surveillance and read the love poems that she'd text me. I couldn't tell her that they could access all the poems she texted me. I couldn't tell her that they had access to all the photos she took. Not just her public photos, but her intimate ones. I couldn't tell her that her information was being collected and everyone's information was being collected, which was tantamount to government threat. If you ever get out of line, we'll use your private life against you. I tried to explain it to her obliquely through an analogy. I told her to image opening up on the laptop one day and finding a spreadsheet on her desktop. Why, she said. I don't like spreadsheets. I wasn't prepared for this response, so I just said the first thing that came to mind. Nobody does, but this one's called The End. Oh, mysterious, Lindsay had said. You don't remember having created this spreadsheet? But once you open up, you recognize its contents because inside is everything, absolutely everything that could ruin you. Every speck of information that could destroy your life. Lindsay smiled. Can I see the one for you? She was joking, but I wasn't. A spreadsheet containing every scrap of data that you could pose a mortal hazard. Imagine it. All the big secrets, small I don't know. Um, so he goes on about arguing with Lindsay. Lindsay doesn't care, and he does. And this whole thing with the cloud um, was about him and her going back and forth. 
I feel defeated. Two great institutions of my life have been betrayed and were betraying me, my country and the Internet, and now my body was following suit. My brain quite literally short-circuited. So, yeah, he was getting to the point where he just didn't like the use of anything on the Internet. So now chapter 18, he's on the couch late one night, May 1st, 2011. So we're coming up on about uh, nine years ago. It's not too long ago. I noticed a news alert on my phone. Osama bin Laden had been tracked down to Abbott Taban, Pakistan, and killed by a team of Navy SEALs. So there it was. The man who had masterminded the attacks had propelled me into the Army. From there into the intelligence community was now dead. A dialysis patient shot. Dialysis patient shot point blank in the embrace of his multiple wives in their lavish compound just down the road from Pakistan's major military academy. Site after site showed maps indication where the hell about a Abbott Tabad Abbott Tabad was. Alternating with street scenes from cities throughout America, where people were fist pumping, chest bumping, yelling, getting wasted. Even New York was celebrating, which almost never happens. I turned off the phone, I just didn't have it in me to join. Don't get me wrong, I was glad that the MFR was dead, but I was just having a pensive moment and felt a circle closing. Ten years, that's how long it had been since these two planes flew into the towers. Yeah, it was ten years. What did we have to show for it? What did the last decade actually accomplish? He's looking back at 2011. I sat on the couch and I inherited my mother's condo and gazed through the window into the street and beyond as a neighbor honked the horn of his parked car. I couldn't shake the idea that I'd wasted the last decade of my life. The previous 10 years had been a cavalcade of American-made tragedy. The tragedies were the forever war in Afghanistan, the catastrophic regime in Iraq, the indefinite detentions at Guantanamo Bay, extraordinary renditions, torture, targeted killings of civilians, even American civilians, via drone strikes. And as I said, I know this to be true. I wasn't told ever what goes on in Sandia National Labs, but you can watch the History Channel or different scientific channels, and uh, somewhere where I used to take care of clients, this channel was playing, and I was told it plays regularly historical uh, uh, public knowledge, um, either events or the doings of the Sandia, and one of the things they did was run the drones. And here he's saying drone, drone strikes, and so I have to find a grain of truth in what, what he's writing, or him and Lindsay both. Domestically, there was homeland securitization of everything, which assigned a threat rating to every waking day, red severe, orange high, yellow elevated. 
and from the Patriot Act, the steady erosion of civil liberties, the very liberties we were allegedly, allegedly fighting to protect, the cumulative damage, the malfeasance in aggregate was staggering to contemplate and felt entirely irreversible, and yet we were still honking our horns and flashing our lights in jubilation. The biggest terrorist attack on American soil happened concurrently with the development of digital technology, which made much of the earth American soil. Whether we liked it or not, terrorism, of course, was the stated reason why most of my country's surveillance programs were implemented at a time of great fear and opportunism. But it turned out to be the fear that the true terrorism perpetuated by a political system that was increasingly willing to use practically any justification to authorize the use of force. After a decade of mass surveillance, the technology had proved itself to be a potent weapon, less against terror and more against liberty itself. By continuing these programs, by continuing these lies, America was battling little, winning nothing, and losing much until there would be a few distinctions left between those post-9-11 polarities of us and them. Um, the later half of 2011 passed into a succession of seizures and countless doctor's offices and hospitals. So he had taken ill and was having seizures. Uh, this is on the couch. I was imaged, tested, prescribed medications that stabilized my body, but clouded my mind, turning me depressed, lethargic, and unable to focus. I wasn't sure how I was going to live with what Win Lindsay was now calling my condition. Being the top technologist for Dell CIA account meant I had tremendous flexibility. My office was my phone. I could work from home, but meetings were an issue. They were always in Virginia, and I lived in Maryland, a state whose laws prevented people diagnosed with epilepsy from driving. If I were caught behind the wheel, I could lose my driver's license. So here he discloses he had epilepsy. Finally, I gave in to the inevitable. Took a short-term disability from Dell and decamped to my mother's second-hand couch. It was blue as my mode, my mood, but comfortable. And so here, I'm sure with his epilepsy, he had some government benefits, short-term disability, and time to reflect. And he goes on reflecting about all kinds of historical events as he gets off on tangents, but nothing about uh, what he's doing, because he's not doing anything now. He's on the couch. The word privacy itself, he quotes, towards the end of On the Couch chapter, is empty. The word privacy itself is somewhat empty because it essentially is indefinable or overdefinable. Each of us has our own idea of what is privacy means something to everyone. There is no one to whom it means nothing. So he goes on with this loss of privacy and uh, surveillance issue, how we've all lost our privacy. 
And if you don't care about the freedom to peaceably assemble because you're lazy, antisocial, agoraphobic, just because this or that freedom might not have a meaning to you today doesn't mean that it doesn't or won't have a meaning to you tomorrow or to your neighbor or to the crowds of principled dissidents I was following on my phone who were protesting halfway across the planet, hoping to gain a fraction of freedoms that my country was busily dismantling. So again, he talks about us losing all our freedom. Um, The people in the Middle East were agitated for higher wages, lower prices, better pensions, but I couldn't give them any of that. No one could give them a better shot at self-governance than the one they were taking themselves. They were, however, also agitated for a freer Internet. They were decrying Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini, who had been increasingly censoring and blocking blocking the threatening web content, tracking and hacking traffic to offend offending platforms and services, shutting down certain foreign ISPs entirely. They were protesting Egypt's President Hosni Mubarak, who would cut off the Internet access for his whole country, for his whole country, which had merely succeeded in making every young person in the country more furious and bored, luring them out into the streets. So he's talking about how the Internet, they're they're trying to control it, as you can see, some of the history of... uh, different regimes. Perhaps he picked up and was reading some history books while he was on the couch. So um, he's really big on anonymity, which is the charity that I'm in, Alcoholics Anonymous. We're really big on anonymity, but sometimes I'll sit and have a talk with my sponsor, a master's degree in psychology and an international director in sanitation. Um, We have a talk about what is anonymity. Anonymity was really a big thing back in the 30s. Um, But it seems to have a a looser definition today. And this is how Snowden is entering into the conclusion of part one and two of his book, Permanent Record. And I'll read the last part on the couch. I imagined... Um, Well, first of all, the least I could do, if there was the slightest chance that one kid from Iran who hadn't been able to get online could now bypass imposed filters and restrictions and connect to me or connect through me, protected by the Tor system and my server's anonymity then it was certainly worth my minimal effort. Imagine this person reading their email and checking their social media accounts to make sure that their friends and family had not been arrested. I had no way of knowing whether this was what they did or whether anyone at all linked to my server from Iran. And that was the point. The aid I offered was private. The guy who started the Arab Spring was almost exactly my age. He was a produce peddler in Tunisia, selling fruits and vegetables out of a cart. In protest against the repeated harassment and extortion by authorities, he stood in the square and set fire to 
his life, dying a martyr. If burning himself to death was the last free act he could manage in defiance of an illegitimate regime, I could certainly get off the couch and press a few buttons. So he's introducing that he wants to help these people in, who are oppressed uh, in these countries, Iran, in Egypt, for example, um, who had taken away the Internet from them. And ever since I've been introduced to the Tor Project in Geneva, Switzerland, I used its browser and run my own Tor server wanting to do my professional work from home and my personal web browsing unmonitored. So now he's ready to help some others. He then distributed its inc Man behind the machine, this is your old pal Jack Nicholson. I would just like to personally thank you for giving me a brain adjustment with all of your special technology. <laughs> thank you for hooking me up to the right doozly doobles and jobbly jobbles, if you know what I mean. Uh, although I did have to uh, strap my brain skull into that contraption, I gotta say, I had uh, one of the greatest times of my life being hooked up to the interwebs. So thank you very much for uh, introducing me to the worldwide, uh, let's just say the worldwide zeros and ones. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Uh, it was a, it was an experience like none other. And uh, thank you very much for all of your technological wizardry and uh, your highly extensive knowledge about this simulated reality. Take care, buddy.